guys are funny. Every time I see them, they, they, have, the, they have a gift, a God-given gift of uh, creating laughter and everything else. Pretty, uh, pretty amazing guys. Always have something funny to say about Christmas and uh, nothing more fun than actually getting to search those out and kind of look through all of these and see which ones are the funniest to come and show you. So uh, love doing that, love doing that. Well, we are here to celebrate uh, Christ in its entirety. And one of the things that we decided to do uh, uh, this Christmas was to really talk with you about uh, different Christmas revelations that I've had over the years uh, as we study Christmas. I'm, I, I'm guilty of, I, of looking past the surface of not just being satisfied with what I see on the top end of the soil, but actually wanting to see the roots grow and actually wanting to see what happens underneath and, and the process by which things grow and and, and mature, and part of that is what's led me into this. Like, I know that, we, and I've said this kind of over and over now at this point, but I know we've read into Luke, and I know that every Christmas time we're going to get together, and we're going to read the gospel according to Luke, the first couple of chapters, because it's the prettiest one. And, and obviously, we don't want to have to answer questions if we have small children as to what the way Matthew would teach it about uh, babies being murdered and all this happening during the time of Jesus as well. But part of understanding the gospel and part of understanding the birth of Christ is, is this to not always paint it uh, uh, the way maybe Luke paints it. Luke paints it to the Gentiles who, for all purposes, were, were really ignorant to their own depravity. I mean, they kind of understood that they were evil in their own way, that they had worshipped for the gods. It wasn't hard to convict a Gentile of those things. However, to the church, Matthew's gospel, who is written to, very bloody, very brunt. And Matthew's way of approaching the birth is entire. It's like night and day compared to Luke. And so part of what we're doing in this Christmas is really going back into Matthew's and really as he addresses the church, uh, and addresses people who've been saved for a while, and addresses people who've been living under God's law and legalistically, he's really trying to hammer home the, the darkness and the depravity of man against the light of God, this, this contrast that is constantly going on. So we're going to continue where we left off. Uh, last Sunday, we got to some, basically some insight into the DNA of Christ. We looked, we looked at basically the past and the genealogy of Christ. We noticed how Jesus is tied to some pretty remarkable and faith-filled people, but we also noticed how Jesus is also tied to some prostitutes and baby-killing murderers and some pretty crazy individuals. But now we're going to step into the actual physical birth of Christ and some of the circumstances that led up to the actual birth. And and, and we're going to really key into uh, one of, uh, uh, basically, a person that really, to me, goes unnoticed. We might mention him around Father's Day every once in a while, but there's so many other great men in the Bible he really gets overlooked because he seems to have this small part to play. But I promise you there's a whole lot more there than we give him credit for. And we're going to talk a little bit about Joseph today. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through uh, 19. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. When's the last time you like got before the fireplace, you pulled your kids out, and you started to read that part of the book and trying to explain why Joseph would have to divorce Mary? I mean, I don't remember that story ever being told around a Christmas tree and, and all the presents right there. Let me explain to you how divorce works. <laughs> Let me explain to you why he would consider such a thing. But here's the reason I tend to love Matthew's story, because it, it comes off very real to me, uh, very human. It has real 
uh, 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 has real hardships, real relationships, things that we can understand. And immediately we have to focus on the fact that Joseph sees Mary. And by the time Joseph sees Mary in this passage, she's already pregnant. And I don't know about you, but can you imagine this? Your heart is set on marrying a woman. You've waited for the right time, the right opportunity to make her your wife. She is by reputation a woman of virtue. Her reputation precedes her, that she is very pure, very holy, very devout type woman, right? Equally yoked, so to speak, uh, very, uh, 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 you know, pure. And she, the Bible says that she had kept herself pure, and the scripture even says right here that Joseph was a righteous man. That's God saying that Joseph was a righteous man. The word of God is, is declaring this already about the reputation of Joseph, that he was a righteous man. He did and kept the way of the law. He was a good man. And if you don't understand when I say good man, I mean a holy man. He was a holy man, an obedient man. He desired and had a passion for doing the things God's way. Now, can I tell you, marrying a woman that sleeps around is not the idea of the right thing, right? Right? That doesn't sound equally yoked to me, all right? But this is what's presented before him according to Matthew chapter 1. And if you piece the Gospels together, Mary, didn't show, Mary didn't, wasn't pregnant in the beginning. It's not like he started out, well, you know, you were going to marry her already while she was pregnant. Now you're deciding to back out. No, when he first seen her and first arranged all this, Mary wasn't pregnant. She goes off on a trip to see Zechariah and Elizabeth, and she comes back showing. Now... This is when things get weird, right? <laughs> this, this is like stuff on TV. Uh, Joseph sees that his bride might not be as virtuous as she thought, right? As he thought. First of all, have you experienced uh, uh, ever a, a person that has said or even appeared as one thing only to find out that they're not what they appear to be? I think we all encountered that at some time in life. That somebody says one thing, they say they're one thing, they say they're a type of person, but they turn out not to be that type of person at all. I can't tell you how many times I meet people along the way in the church that, man, vocally, they say they're one thing. Their life speaks different. Their actions that they do speak different. And so we see this a lot. And I'm sure he saw this a lot. Joseph did. And I begin, I, you, can, you can tell that he starts to look at the situation a bit differently because you see in those days, if a woman is caught in adultery, she's stoned. Mosaic law. That would be a holy and righteous act under Mosaic law. She would be stoned, Right? But here's the thing, uh, uh, Joseph had every right not to marry her, right? He, he, he had every right to say, I don't want anything to do with it. He had every right to say, here, come take her, stone her, do whatever you want. And he would still have been considered a righteous and holy man, right? I mean, let's, let's face it. Um, if my wife or soon-to-be wife comes up to me and says that she's pregnant with God's baby, I might not believe her, amen? I'm just saying. I think we're all adults in here and we know where babies come from and it's not from me plus God equals baby. All right? I, I just think that's a pretty honest approach to it. Uh, I think if somebody come up to me back in those days, even so, with everything that's spiritual that's happened with Moses and everything else, considering we're under the oppression of the Roman government and it seems like God's so far off at times, if a 15-year-old, 16-year-old girl comes to me and says, I'm really pregnant through, my, through, through God's baby, I'd be like, you're a liar. And now we're going to have to stone you probably, right? I mean, like, I, I just can't, I can't fathom this taking place. And I can't fathom not being angry about it 
Um, I can't fathom not being furious and mad and everything I had set up and everything I had waited for. Uh, this was the person that he had, dream- he had arranged this. This is a, a dream for him to be married to a person who high reputation, virtuous, pure, uh, a, a righteous uh, woman. And now it's all in ruin because she comes back. And maybe now if this is a lie that it is, I mean, because he's going to believe that uh, you didn't have God's baby, okay? So he's going to believe that's a lie. Now, what else is a lie? And it becomes to be a thing in his mind, right? Like a seed that's planted is going to start uh, grabbing at things. But here's the, the cool thing about the whole thing is that we know Mary's not lying. We know she's telling the truth, right? Um, but Joseph can't believe it. And let's be honest, we would have a hard time too. Hard to judge Joseph here. Because we know that that's not natural. Joseph has a hard time. Um, And yet, here's what I thought is great about Joseph. He's not without compassion for her. Read verse 19 with me again. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Listen, as hurt as Joseph was, he couldn't hurt Mary. There was affection already there. There was passion and compassion and love already taking place between the two. He didn't want to expose her publicly. Rather, he sought out a solution to divorce her quietly. Uh, It isn't pretty, but it was compassionate, sensitive, and loving. He could have made a spectacle, but he didn't. Um, That wasn't what Joseph was all about. I also believe it's in these moments right here is why we see why he was such a great earthly father. Because his compassion is constantly shining through this moment. Like, I understand that I can't fathom what she's done, and I am completely angry. But even in my anger, I don't wish her hurt. I mean, it's almost in the sense that he knows that she's going to pay enough price for this thing that she has said. Because who's going to believe that you're having God's baby? I mean, he feels bad for her. And in compassion, he, he, he's... He's moved into compassion already. So his heart is not taken over by anger or, or being furious. At this point, his heart is being revealed. Because listen, man, you never know who a person is until you chunk them in the fire and see what comes out. And I promise you, if there was ever a time to see Joseph angry, this is the moment. Why isn't he furious? Why isn't he angry? Because his disposition is to be compassionate first. Oh, come on, that'll preach. Matthew... Uh, One, let's read 20 through 25. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph considered all that he would do to separate himself from this moment, to separate himself from Mary. He had a plan. That's usually the time when we all know, like we all laugh at that part, right? He had a plan. We've had plans. They get laughed at, right? God's like, oh, your plan's funny. Uh, But here's the thing. God has a plan, and God reveals it to Joseph in a dream. Now, let me state the obvious here. I've had a lot of dreams, and I've had some dreams where I thought they were God dreams. I've had some dreams that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt are just figment of my imagination. 
So why is this dream so convincing? Seriously, I've dreamed I can fly, but nothing makes me think when I get up that I can actually fly. Now, as a young child, I did test that theory out, and I found out I cannot fly. But I mean, and over time, experience teaches you somewhat, you know, like you've had too many dreams that were like, I have no idea how a tiger got in my dream, but all of a sudden I'm petting a tiger, you know, and like crazy things. So why would this be like an angel came to me in my dream, said that Mary did have God's baby. I don't know if I would believe that. I'm just being honest here. I don't know if that would be something so believable to me, but for Joseph, it was. And, and, and maybe, maybe here's why, all right? Maybe here's why. Maybe it reveals the greater things in us when we struggle to believe sometimes when God is telling us things. John 10, 14 reads, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Again, in John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Joseph knew God because he was a man of God. All those things, that they're, in, they're antiques today. Men of God are almost, they're antiques today. You can rarely find them. They're rare. They're, they've been around a while, but they're rare. That means that Joseph prayed, he spoke with God, he followed after God. Joseph knew this was a God dream because he knew the voice of God and he knew who God was. Can we say that about ourselves? When God begins to speak to us, are we going to know him? Do we know what his voice sounds like? Will we hear him when he speaks to us, regardless of how it's done? Can we hear God through others? Can I tell you, there's many times where I've been so thankful that people were Jesus Christ to me. Can I tell you that I have seen physically Jesus Christ through individuals when they spoke life into me? I can't tell you how many times that I have thanked my wife with the exact words, I thank you for being Jesus today. Some of you need to respond that way to people when they encourage you, when they lift you. Thank you for being Jesus today and help remind people that they are the living proof of an invisible God. When God speaks to us, do we struggle to know if it's him? And let me say that even as much as I pray and I seek to understand God, and I even struggle here. But let me also say that in my struggle to hear God, it only makes me want to know God more. I'm not pressed away by my failure. I'm pushed on. I like to always say adversity is the stone by which I sharpen my sword. Failure is the platform for which I will succeed. Failure teaches me all the ways that were wrong till I find the way that is right. We need to be there. When it comes to knowing the voice of God, well, I didn't make it up to prayer today. That's okay. Get up tomorrow. Well, I missed tomorrow. That's okay. Get up the next day. And you keep pressing and pushing until it happens. That's how it's done. <laughs> It's, it's, it's the gridiron. It really is. Sometimes knowing God is really the gridiron. But let me tell you something. You know how much God is impressed by you when you're like that? Because this is how he is, right? I mean, through the beating, through the torture, through all the pain, he did whatever it took to know you. Whatever it took to deliver you. No matter what, there was no obstacle too great, too high, uh, you know, to, to, to conquer, to get to where you are, to be with you so that you could be with him. Why is it not the same with us? I want to know him. I want to hear his voice. I want to recognize his voice pattern like he recognizes mine. Can I tell you that when I called to him, he can call me by name? Out of all his children on the face of the planet and everything he must have to do in heaven, he still knows me every time I speak. What happens next is phenomenal because Joseph wakes up and he just is simply obedient. 
I don't know too many of us that are like that. We'd start questioning. We'd call five friends, and we would be like, hey, had a dream. What do you think about that dream? Right? We'd be asking, but it doesn't say Joseph did any of that. He gets up, and he's obedient. Matthew doesn't give us some drawn-out prophet Joel-like conversation in which Joseph questions God's will and design for his life. There's no conversation because for Joseph, God said it, and that's enough. And let me point out to something obvious here. God gives great responsibility. Listen, great responsibility, great vision, great courage to those who are obedient. Period. Think Think of the magnitude of what is being thrown on his shoulders here. Joseph is obedient. He even abstains from being with his wife as the Lord commands. And listen, we're all adults here. That's not an easy task for newlyweds because newlyweds enjoy being newlyweds. Amen. There's a few of us, amen. For those that have forgotten, it is true. An obedient man or woman of God has a heart that bleeds for God. It desires to do the things for God. It desires to be in communion with God. It wants what God wants. If this is what God wants, then by all means, Joseph is going to make it happen. One of my favorite authors, uh, Mark Batterson, had this to say about the heart of God. And I want you to hear it's a little bit lengthy, but it's so worth the listening here. He said this about the heart of God. Heart transplants are a marvel of modern medicine, but it goes way beyond what medicine can explain or understand. The heart is more than a physical pump. It doesn't just circulate 5,000 quarts of blood through 60,000 miles of blood vessels day in and day out. The heart has a mind of its own. Studies suggest that the heart secretes its own brain-like hormones and has cellular memory. So a heart transplant isn't just physical, it's metaphysical. Heart transplant recipients don't just receive a new organ, they receive new cellular memories. In his book, A Man After His Own Heart, Charles Siebert shares a scientific yet poetic depiction of a heart transplant he observed at New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. Not long after, Siebert attended an annual banquet for transplant recipients, and he was deeply moved by their profound appreciation for life. They spoke in reverent tones about the second chance at life they had been given. They humbly acknowledged their responsibility to honor the donor. And many of them talked about new desires that accompanied their new hearts. Siebert concluded, listen here, and, uh, and his research is backed by numer- numerous medical studies that transplant recipients don't just receive a new heart. Along with a new heart, they receive whole new sensory responses, cravings, and habits. Siebert called this heart recipients the tribe of the transplanted. He further continues, listen, it's so good. When you give your heart to Christ, Christ gives his heart to you, and you become a part of the tribe of the transplanted. That new heart gives you a new appreciation for life. You humbly acknowledge your responsibility to honor the donor. And the cellular memories that come with that transplanted heart give you all new sensory responses, cravings, and habits. You literally feel different. Why? Because you feel what Christ feels. A chief among those sanctified emotions is compassion. Your heart begins to break for the things that break the heart of God. You become part of something that started at Calvary, and that is the heart of what it means to love God with all your heart. Is that not fantastic? Wow. 
We take upon his heart, and with, with his heart comes new memories, new cravings. We wonder why we become so different, because it's, it's just planted in us. As we take upon the heart of Christ to be conformed, we become literally over time his image. Liking the things they like, new cravings in life, new opportunity in life, new seasons in life, all come with the new heart. We're all part of the tribe of the transplanted. And listen, we know the rest of the story here. You already know it. Unto us a child is born. A Savior is given. He's Christ the Lord. Jesus is birthed right in the middle of a huge drama that is unfolding. God, uh, as man, is birthed into the world. And that is huge. It is. It was so big that it split time and history. Can you imagine the enormous magnitude of this entire process? This is 2,000 years in the waiting from Genesis to then. It's an incredible unfolding story that God has been so patient about to bring about. And, and literally, think, we think about how big this is. You all received Christ. You've all been uh, born again, hopefully. I mean, I think everybody knows everybody in the room. I can say that about. And, and, and here's the thing. You know how big a deal this is. Christ going to Calvary, the Easter story of being uh, uh, resurrected and how big this whole thing is. Now think about this. He threw this down into the hands of a 15-year-old girl. The magnitude, the salvation of the world is in the hands of a teenager. Terrified now, aren't you? Yeah. You're like, I wouldn't even give my keys to, the keys to the car to my kid. Man, I'm terrified to let that joker drive. I'm, I'm one of those right now. My daughter's learning to drive. It's terrifying. I mean, there's some, I think there's some that just have a natural knack for it, and there's some that just have to be taught, you know? And I tell you, the kind of teenager I was, I wasn't responsible at all. Praise God for my parents' patience, man. Praise God for them. I wasn't responsible at all. But this was all in the hands of a 15-year-old girl. Not even a 15-year-old boy. That, I mean, I don't know if, if one's better or the other. But it's kind of scary to think, you know, I have 15-year-old girls. There's some times where they wake up and it's not a good morning. And I'm just thinking, how can Mary be so virtuous on some, some bad mornings? It, it, it all has me nervous. It would make me scared and kind of freak out. And it's, this whole thing is pretty epic. God took the greatest treasure he could ever give humanity and placed it in the hands of teenagers. Can I tell you something? Don't underestimate teenagers. One of the things that I have found out in youth ministry as well as uh, just, well, mo mainly youth ministry just in so many years of doing it, is that I am, I am uh, encouraged when I'm in youth ministry, more so than I'm an adult. When I'm around teenagers, I'm so encouraged. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of ways they scare me to death about what our future holds. But can I tell you something? One of the things that they don't have is tradition and uh, religion and legalism. And those things don't exist there. There's, they, they grasp the concept more than adults, right? First of all, they haven't been Americanized to the point yet where they've kind of intermingled the gospel with, a, with a, just the American culture yet. So this idea of kingdom, they understand it. <laughs> and so I am encouraged um, but one thing's for sure, throughout history, uh, teenagers have shown that they can be brave, resilient, and determined to accomplish things they seek to accomplish. Can I tell you, most of the kids that go fight are 18 and 19 years old. And while they might not be old enough to uh, get a drink down the road or whatever like that, but they're old enough to die for this place. And they make good decisions on the battlefield, and they get the job done when nobody else can. 
Let's not forget David, the greatest warrior that's ever been on the planet of the earth, right? Has, is the most decorated service guy in all of Israel, and he fought Goliath at 15 and 16. You know, couldn't shoot a gun, but he can chunk some rocks, man. We'd be surprised. But the drama doesn't end there. Actually, you know, all this seems good, and we learn about Joseph, but it just gets scarier. It just gets more nightmarish. I mean, if you break into chapter 2, it paints this grim picture for the first few days of Jesus, right? I mean, like, that's where it stops there in Luke, right? We don't want to get into that stuff, right? Oh, there's the light. It's shining through the cave. We're holding baby Jesus in this absolutely clean trough. I've never seen a trough this clean, by the way. Uh, But we're, we're holding baby Jesus. Everything is perfect in the manger, that whole scene in the three wise men are there, and it's all beautiful nativity scene, but they don't tell you the fact that uh, uh, there's uh, the, what happens afterwards. And let, let's kind of jump in there. Verse uh, 18 there in Matthew chapter 1, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Herod, in his effort to kill off any opposing prophesied threat, decides to put to death every male child below the age of two in Bethlehem. And I can't help but think of all the movies where I've seen this whole portrayal of Jesus, right? To to see this one part that's about to happen where they start kicking in the doors and they start butchering children. I mean, I would love to think that we, Jesus came and it, maybe at least in his birth, he could see some of the best of us. But even in his birth, we were trying to kill him. We've been trying to kill Jesus our whole life. If you look at all the prophets that get killed, I mean, how many times have you seen in the Bible where it says, you who killed the prophets? Every time God has sent us anybody to, to prophesy or tell us about this coming Christ or prophesy to tell us on how to be right with him and how to come live with him, we kill them all. We really do. We kill pastors today. We shoot our own wounded. And we talk about love, grace, and honor, and then as soon as somebody disagrees with us, we're ready to put them in the devil's hold, man, and stomp a mud hole in them. Our depravity is so obvious. I'm telling you, this is why we needed Matthew. We needed this gospel. It's like this constant reminder. It's not picture perfect. There's humanity involved, by the way. And anything that we touch is messy. Now, you know, I, I told somebody that they were asking us, what's your church like? I said, well, we're messy very messy church. He's like, what do you mean? You don't pick up after yourself? I'm like, no. We have messy lives. And if you have a messy life and you're honest and you want to be transparent about that and you know that you need Christ because that's what it ultimately reveals, that you need Jesus, then yeah, we're a bunch of ragamuffins. Come on, we're beggars at the door of God's mercy. That's what we are here. And they said, well, won't people not, literally what they said, won't people not go to your church? And I'm like, yeah. There's absolutely people who are not going to come see me and hear me and want to sit underneath my leadership and pastoring because I'm going to be honest about my failures. And I tell them, and I said, listen, I tell those people, I said, listen, there are all kinds of pastors all around that would love to, for you to think that they're perfect and they're more than welcome at their church. And I'm not trying to cut down on a pastor, but anybody who thinks that, they, that a pastor is perfect, you already have missed it. It's no such thing. Now, whether they share with you all their downfalls, that's another story. You know, I've been said sometimes that the pulpit has become my greatest therapy. <laughs> I've also been told, I think Rick DeVos once said this, some of us, I hate to say I relate to this, but I think it's funny. He said, we all know that some of us, the only way we've managed to stay saved is by getting behind the pulpit and just doing whatever God has told us to do. Otherwise, if we weren't behind the pulpit, we'd probably never be in it and probably never be in the church. Uh, uh, God has a grasp on my heart, and I pray he never lets go. I, pr- I pray that I stay a wreck for him, and if it keeps my life messy, then so be it. 
If that's what it takes to be with Christ, so be it. I wrote down in here, we're talking about the nativity scene. You know, you always hear that joy to the world, the Christ is born, but we, we never see that part right where the music is like stifled by babies crying, babies being butchered, uh, the depravity of men being so obvious. Uh, but he, and here's the cool thing to go back to Joseph is that in the middle of all this, you know, the one thing God can count on Joseph, he can count on Joseph to understand his voice. He can count on Joseph to have a, a, a heart that is passionate for him, a will that is passionate to seek his right? He can count on Joseph to love this child like it's its own, like he loved Mary despite what he might have thought. He was still going to treat her with with respect, and he was still going to try to do things right, compassion. He can count on Joseph for this, right? And so Joseph lives on the run, right? He receives another dream, and the dream tells him, get up, Joseph. Get up out of that manger right now. Get up out of that place and run to Egypt. They are coming. And I love Joseph. Again, all it says is that he gets up, says we gots to go, and gets it done. And so Joseph lives on the run. Now, can I tell you? Let me tell you about the character of Joseph right here. How many of you are waiting for God to call you so that when he calls you, you will live a life on the run? Man, I had a decent job. I was respected amongst the community. I was marrying this woman who was virtuous. My life was good. I mean, I was doing well. I was taking someone in, creating my own house, my own family. Things were good. Now I have a wife who's having God's baby. Think how crazy this sounds, who's having God's baby. And now I am being hunted down by the king of Israel. My life has changed. My life has changed. What would you do if that was to you? Joseph flees to Egypt. Twice now, Egypt becomes the place of refuge for God's people. Once with Joseph, and now with Jesus. It's going to be this temporary home for them. And they stayed there until the people that basically sought to kill them were all dead. God says, I need to pick you up, and I need to move you from all your family." I need to pick you up. I need to take you from everything you know, everything you've got to know, every family that you have, everything you've got and all that, and I need to pick you up and take you away from everything. I'm going to make you a wanted man. I'm going to have you take care of my baby. Be a surrogate father to it. I need you to adopt my child. He needs an earthly father. He'll always have a a heavenly one, but he needs an earthly one. And what, what, can you imagine a better man, first of all? The man who just listens and does whatever God says without nowhere do you see him complain. Nowhere do you see him question. Nowhere do you see him give Mary a hard time for this whole thing. He treats her with respect constantly. He makes sure that that relationship, irregardless of now that they're married, stays pure in the entire process. Great, great man of God. And as I read and I studied over all this and, and prayed over all this, there's something just comes out obvious over and over. God speaks, Joseph obeys. God speaks, Joseph obeys. God speaks, Joseph obeys. It's rather simple. And the truth of the matter is, God, we mess it up. We really mess it up. We're so confused of whether we actually hear the voice of God half the time. 
Because it either sounds a lot like our own, or there's so much noise in our life, we don't know what the voice of God is hardly anymore. I mean, the truth of the matter is, we stay constantly distracted. If I gave you uh, five minutes of quietness where we did anything, it, it, it'd be like two before you're on your phone. Or you'd be writing something down, or you'd have to read something just to sit there in a quiet spot and do nothing. It, it'd feel like torture. It'd feel like torture today. But that's pretty common back then for prayer. That's pretty common to go find yourself. One of the great missionaries, um, uh, you, back a long time ago, a long time ago, uh, um, one of the things that was advice given to, to this guy, I remember them saying, he says, well, what would it take to be a great man of God? He said, first of all, get rid of all your childhood friends right now because they're not going to take you anywhere closer to God. And these were godly friends he had. They're not going to take you into the wisdom and into the counsel of God. Find yourself an elderman. You know, and then he found a guy who was like in his 60s. And he says, now, that, that, that knows how to pray and that you know is well-respected in knowing the voice of God. He says, find yourself one of these guys and do whatever he tells you to do. And this guy would get up every morning, get him up every morning at 4 o'clock. They would have to go to the woods. This is like back in the, like, I think it's uh, 1700s, 1800s. And, and he would go, have to go out to the woods and for four hours underneath the trees would pray. <laughs> this is what this guy was teaching and training him for. It, unbelievable. Unbelievable stuff. He, he, he wrote a journal that that uh, is very popular today. Matter of fact, <clears throat> most of the Methodist church, when it first began, a lot of the fire that came from Wesley uh, back when the Methodist church again came because he read this guy's journal. Uh, pretty incredible individual. Um, this is what it is to know. The, we, we need to know the Lord. And we not, not just know the Lord, but we need to be op- obedient. We have such wicked hearts. We question and we question. We are stubborn and we're stiff-necked, or as the, K, uh, as the King James would say, stiff-necked. But the Lord desires an obedient man more than sacrifice. You can give and give and give, but God requires obedience above all. C.S. Lewis once said this, Obedience is the road to freedom. The road, uh, humility is the road to pleasure, and unity the road to personality. Obedience is nothing more than sanctification. It's the living proof that you become part of the tribe of the transplanted. It is the outward physical evidence of an inward spiritual change. When, when, when we see, when we're obedient to God, it's the proof that He is real. It's the proof. When you do what God's called you to do, some of you have been in those scenarios where God's called you, just go up there and talk to that person. You know you're supposed to go talk to that person. You're supposed to say hi. Or you're supposed to do something, right? And God's told you and you've done it for and you know at that moment you are. You are the proof that Jesus is real. Paul said in Romans that God's will for you is to be conformed unto the image of Jesus Christ. And the only way we do that is by keeping our eyes fixed on him. Because in leadership, like we would say, we, we become what we behold. I promise you, if you want to drive a straight line, you're going to keep your eyes fixed forward. If you want to drive to someplace, you fix your eyes on the place you want to drive to and you, you'll, you'll go straight to it. Same thing with Christ. If you'll keep your eyes fixed on Christ, you'll find yourself walking straight towards him. Until you become him. Right? One of the greatest, uh, I guess I would call it segues of my ministry has been, uh, the greatest and worst, uh, uh, let's put it that way, uh, was in the very beginning of ministry, I felt like I'd heard God's voice all the time. So it was very easy. And I want to say I almost got, 
judgmental a little bit because it was very easy. It was very soldier-like. God approached me almost like a soldier in the sense that God said stuff and I just did it. And so like uh, the, 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 the irony of all that is I would get credit for a lot of the things. Uh, even as I, we raised funds for missions or did anything and, and God would tell me specific numbers that we're going to raise this amount and we would raise this amount. But you know what's funny to me, even in the church, and we know it, but we still kind of do it, is we know that Christ really did the work, but we still tend to honor the people. And, and I always felt guilty of that personally because I was like, I just did what I was told. Like God said we were going to do this amount. I got confidence because if God said it, it's not my problem, it's his. So I never like worried or uh, stressed out over that. But on the flip side, I, I can honestly say though, but I would... I would receive some of the credit. And then, let me tell you, here's how that works when that starts to happen. You will find yourself in this place, and this is what God did to me. And this is what I learned, that it was a process. Same, same thing as walking, right? When your kids first start to walk, they start crawling, right? And then they'll start standing up and falling down a whole lot. All right? So there, there, there became this process, a time where I was just listening to God, doing whatever God says, and God was doing like mighty things, mighty things through the ministry. I've seen people say, uh, baptisms, all these great things, and really, I, w- I knew in, in my heart of hearts that I wasn't doing anything but just listening to whatever he told me to do and say whatever he told me to say. So it was like super easy for me, and I would, just being honest, I would criticize others and go, why can't they just do that? And here's what I found out, and here's why you're going to struggle, and I'm going to kind of share with you why you probably struggle with hearing the Lord, because here's what happens. And maybe this is what I needed for God to be able to share this with you today, is of course it's that way, because in the beginning, we hold babies. In the beginning, we take our baby everywhere, and they can't walk, and they can't do nothing on their own because they're just a baby. And so we take them everywhere, we do everything for them, we make it easy as we can on them, because they can't walk yet. They can't do things on their own yet. They're not making decisions for themselves yet. But as they grow, we know that we can't hold, keep holding them. And so what happens is God began to go, all of a sudden, it was like God wasn't there for me for a while. And I'd be like, I don't know what to do. God's not speaking to me. Can I tell you what was happening in that process? God was going, uh-huh, I showed you the way to walk. Walk. Get out there and walk. I've shown you what I... I I've shown you my works. Now go do likewise. Well, God, what if I fail? What if, what if, what if? I'll still be here. You're going to fall sometimes, but you will learn how to walk. But if I keep carrying you, you're never going to be able to just be me on your own. That's, it's not, my intent is not to carry you through life. My intent is for you to be me. I hope we get that. God's intent is for you to be conformed unto his image, the walking, talking, flesh, breathing uh, Jesus Christ upon the earth so that when God looks down upon the earth, that's all he can see is his son and multiplied, right? We are supposed to walk on it. At some point, God says, okay, I've taught you how to live in me. Now go live. Go live. You know what that, you know what that freedom allows? This is where we like we love and we'll sing about freedom, but the truth is we don't want it. The truth is we, this is why we end up being legalists because it's easier. Legalism is like a guardrail that I know that I'm doing right because I'm standing upright and I'm walking okay. It's like a guardrail that kind of helps us. We think it's helping us, but it's not helping us. It's hurting us. It's keeping us palsy. It's keeping our legs from being strengthened up from underneath us. And so what, what needs to happen in this process so that we can hear and be like Joseph and be obedient is at some point, once we begin to walk in Christ, we'll be able to live in Christ. And when we make bad decisions, who cares if we make bad decisions? And that's where we got to get. 
Well, I don't know if it's the Lord's will. Either way, you got to make a decision. Make the best one. And then you know what? Believe in his word when it says that all things are working towards your good. Good or bad. That it's okay. It's okay. You will survive. You will make it through. And how you live through that circumstance is going to show to the rest of the world what kind of person you are and who lives in you. Right? How you respond to circumstances. You don't think Jesus had hard times? Jesus obviously had hard times. So will you. And in the midst of those hard times, do likewise as he would do. Get on your knees, find a place, pray, know what God... Listen, you already know God's will. You already know God's will. It's that you be conformed unto Jesus Christ. There's, listen, all the decisions that you're going to make, they're all going to help point towards that. Live. Take a deep breath. Let the stress go. Let go of all that anxiety and live and walk in Jesus. This is how Joseph is confident. I've lived upright. I live holy. I live righteous. I live with God fixated in my mind at all the time. I might make a wrong turn, but it's okay because my eyes are fixed on Christ. I might hit a bump or a snag in the road, but it's okay because where are my eyes pointing? They're pointing towards Jesus so that when I go to sleep and I have a dream, I know that it's him. Why? Because I was a child at one time. I know my parents' voice. Right? When your kid calls out to you from a crowd of children, you know their voice, don't you? You don't think it's the same? It's the same. Your kids know yours. You start hollering some names, they'll know it. It's funny how other kids sometimes know it. Right? That's when we testify to the world, man. Joseph knew his voice. And because he knew his voice, he was obedient. There are going to be times where God will still speak crystal clear to you in some areas where you really need some help. Just like uh, if you've ever called upon your parents or somebody that's older than you for advice. God is still there for those moments. And he still is going to speak to you. And he still wants to be your friend. And he still wants to hang out with you. But he also wants you. He gave this place to you, this earth here, so that you might enjoy it. (laughs) As much as it can be depressing and all these other things, it still can be a place of joy, peace, and love right? The church is a gift to each other for the building up, for the, for the growing, for the teaching, for the learning. Yeah, all those are great things, but also for the less, the peace, the sharing of one's burden to another so that, so that loads are made light. Why? Because we share it. We grab and say, come lean on me. Let me give you a hug. Let me hold you. Let me do something, right? This is Christmas, Jesus' birth into this, it's not just the birth of a baby that's come for salvation. It's the birth of all things. It's the birth of peace on earth. It's the birth of joy on earth. Physical goodness. The greatness of God's glory upon the face of the earth. And listen, these stories are not like far off people. They're people like you and I. The reason I love Matthew's story because it puts it down on our level. Luke seems too far-fetched for me. I'll just be honest with you. I feel too flawed to be in Luke's gospel. But Matthew, I get I've seen that side of us. I get that. And it's this constant reminder of my desperate need. That's the great thing about Matthew's gospel. It's to the church. It's this constant reminder of how, how great we all are at being Christ or how much we're trying. We're never beneath being awful. But that hope is here. And that even through all that we are, Christ still came. Knowing everything that's bad we've been reading about, Christ is still He came for us because you're worth it. You're worth it. Stand to your feet.
Yeah, I don't know what anybody struggles with. But I hope that was for you this morning. If you struggle with your value, you struggle with worth, you struggle with those things, man. Listen, it doesn't have to stay that way. God has given the church as a blessing to you, to each of us, to share with one another, to help each other, because it's hard, it's difficult. We need family. And church is a bigger family, right? You know, um, I'm really big about being transparent about all those things. And the reason is why is when we expose us really for who we are, it's, it's when we're being honest, it's then that Jesus can do the most work. Nobody comes to salvation dishonestly. Nobody does. When we come to Jesus and we repent, we have to acknowledge how messy we are, how messy our heart is. We have to acknowledge those moments. And when we do that, this is Matthew's version of that, of like, it's messy. Even when Christ came, I know Luke paints it really nice, but it was messy. It really wasn't as nice as he paints it. You know, all those things did happen, yes. And if you take out all these bad things, sure, that's what it looks like. But when you combine those two stories and you see the fullness of it, it really is the church, this glorious, wonderful thing in the midst of the mess. God made a way. God made a way. And I believe he's made a way for each and every one of us this morning. And if you're struggling with identity or anything like that this morning, man, I say identity, with self-worth, self-value, don't. You're struggling, you're thinking you're hearing the voice of God or not hearing the voice of God. I would encourage you to make the best godly decisions you can. I would. And just give them things to God. Life is an adventure. If God told you everything, it would be boring. Live the adventure. Love this life that he's given you. He's given you this opportunity to have this something special here. It's only a short time. I promise you, you're going to go there fast enough. I promise you. And you're there for a long time. So you have this small amount of time to understand what it's like to be here. Enjoy it. Enjoy it this Christmas. Enjoy your families. Enjoy your relationships. As we approach the New Year's, you know if you need to separate things, and we'll deal with those things then. But enjoy your life, the one that Christ has paid for, the one that he came for. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then if you need prayer this morning, I'm going to open up our altar. I'd love to pray with you this morning. Father, right now, God, I'm just so thankful, God. I'm thankful for all that you have allowed us to do, God. Father, that you've called us into ministry, Lord, and not just me, Lord, everyone here. God, you've called us into a place, God. You've opened the doors for us, God, and you've allowed such wonderful ministry to take place, God. Such sharing with one another, God, and Lord, lifting each other up and praying for one another, God. And Father, we know that there's more ahead. But Lord, if there are any in here that might struggle, God, with maybe whatever it is they're going through that's come against their self-worth, their self-value, God. Lord, the value you've placed upon each and every one of us, God, is your son's life. You've birthed him into the world for this purpose, God, that we might be conformed to like him, that we might receive peace and love and joy and mercy and forgiveness through him. Father, I pray for the Christmas spirit in all of them, and not the one that the world has created, but the one that is in Christ, God. 
the birth of love and forgiveness. Lord, if there's any right now, God, that are struggling, any, place it upon their heart to seek out prayer this morning, God. And right now, if that's you and you want to come forward and you need prayer, please, please do. I'll give you just a few seconds. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, you're a good God. You always answer mightily, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Can I have a few others of you just to come and put your hands on us as we pray for them this morning?
Father, we just thank you now, God. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the works of your hand, God. We thank you for all the great and wonderful things that you've done for us, God. Father, we thank you that you were born into this world despite how ugly and messy it could be, God, and despite our depravity, God, and the things that we could never do or accomplish or our lack thereof, God. Father, we thank you that you still loved us. You love us, God, and your grace makes a way for us. And your passion and compassion has built a kingdom, God, so that we can be where you are, God. That's how much you loved us. You want communion and relationship with us, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. We love you this morning, God. We love you and we worship and adore you, God. Help us as we go out this week, God, to be you to this world. Salt, light, God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.